Welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse tinctures of science, art and culture into your brain. I'm Vanessa Gardos. On this edition, we'll feature travel sicknesses and how children use their brains while learning languages. But first up, here's the news with Justin Seltzer. Firstly, some news in the field of genetics. A study by a collaboration of scientists identified some structural abnormalities in a certain brain area of people afflicted with Williams syndrome. Children with Williams syndrome tend to love music and will spend hours listening to or making music. Despite averaging an IQ score of less than 60, those who suffer from the disease possess a great memory for songs and an uncanny sense of rhythm. Sufferers have such auditory skill that they can often distinguish between different vacuum cleaner brands merely by hearing them in action. Identified more than 40 years ago, Williams syndrome arises from a fault during the development of sperm or egg cells. A set of 20 genes are missing from a particular chromosome, catapulting the sufferer into a world where people make much more sense than objects do. People with Williams syndrome remember names and faces with ease and often use exceptionally expressive language yet they are confounded by the visual world around them. While they can't scribble more than a few rudimentary lines to illustrate an elephant, they can verbally describe one in almost poetic detail. Not only does the study appear to draw links between musical ability and competence with language, but the work opens the door to explaining how genes work through the brain and make us who we are. Heading over to biology now, and a team at Clemson University has developed a method to counter the use of anthrax in biological warfare and the defence comes courtesy of nanotechnology. For anthrax to be effective as a biological weapon, it has to be made into a fine powder so that it can be easily inhaled into the lungs. These scientists have come up with an agent that clings to the anthrax spores, increasing the size of the individual particles, and hence making it difficult to inhale. It was found that carbon nanotubes, tubes that are 100,000 times skinnier than a human hair, aid certain carbohydrates in sticking together, and these exact carbohydrates were found to exist on the surface of the anthrax spore. Thus, by spraying these nanotubes, any anthrax spores will join together and form particles too large to be fatal. Over to some news and statistics now concerning betting on sport. Dr. Bruce Buckiet is the Associate Professor in the Department of Mathematical Sciences at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, and he claims to have found a way to beat the odds when betting on sport. His sport of choice is Major League Baseball in the United States, and he has developed a mathematical model that computes the probability of a team winning a game against another team. The variables that are used in his model include hitters, bench players, starting pitcher, relievers, and home ground advantage. According to Bruce Buckiet, the New York Yankees had a 76% chance of beating the Detroit Tigers in the Major League Baseball playoffs. For the past six years, Buckyett has been using his model to determine whether it's financially worthwhile to wager on sporting events. He has been keen to find out whether one could use a system such as his to consistently beat the odds. So far, results have been good for Dr. Bruce, as his model has yielded positive results in five of the last six years in which he has conducted his study. And now for some science news from 80 years ago. 
Today's news comes from October 1926, where the heading reads, Is there life on Mars? The article goes on, Probably no question is so often asked of the astronomer as this, and to it, his answer always is, We don't know. But if you ask him for his personal opinion, he may concur in the belief expressed by Dr. Henry Norris Russell, Professor of Astronomy at Princeton, that there is probably vegetable life, at least. In fact, so far as we know, Mars is the only heavenly body of which even this can be said. There are hundreds of millions of stars, but as these are all shining by their own light, they are far too hot to support life in any form remotely resembling anything on Earth. As the Sun is a star, differing from the others in the sky merely by the fact that it's much closer, some of these stars may also have planets revolving around them. But even if they did, we have no means of detecting them. That's the science news, past and present. Mark West recently travelled to Hong Kong, so we were expecting some exotic stories. Unfortunately, while he was there, he succumbed to a nasty travel bug. Here's Mark talking about his experiences. When I went to Hong Kong, I thought that I might be able to come back with some scientific tales from this amazingly developed city. However, most of my time that I spent in Hong Kong was spent in bathrooms. But this in itself makes a pretty good story. So this week, I'm going to take a look at some of the diseases that my brother and I picked up during our tour of Asia and how they were treated. It is ironic that having been so careful with the water and food during my time in India, where I was before Hong Kong, that my brother James and I should get sick from eating at McDonald's. But all the evidence is pointing that way. They probably made the Coke we ordered using tap water. James's illness hit within 12 hours with vomiting and severe dehydration. He was so dehydrated that he took in about two litres of saline drip in the Indian hospital before he even went to the toilet. I did not react with vomiting, and perhaps because of James's sickness, did not think all that much of my own until I'd left the country. But it was on landing in Hong Kong, incredibly tired from the 3am start, that it all hit. And it hit hard and explosively. My body erupted, not from my mouth, like it did with James, but more from the other end. With remarkable Hong Kong efficiency, the Hong Kong hospital prescribed me five separate drugs to treat the problem. They did not know exactly what the problem was, and without a proper examination, blood test, urine test and stool sample, they were never going to know, because I had a plane to catch. So introducing the top three contenders for inducing sickness in the West Brothers. Number one is Giardia. Giardia lamblia is a parasite that infects the gastrointestinal tract and gives you giardiasis, a type of gastroenteritis that manifests itself with severe diarrhea and abdominal cramps. Other symptoms include bloating, flatulence, fatigue, nausea, vomiting and weight loss. In some patients, vomiting or nausea is the major symptom. Number two is traveller's diarrhoea. Also known as deli belly or the ragoon runs, traveller's diarrhoea has a host of causes and can have very mild symptoms or kill within hours. The most common cause is the bacteria E. coli. The reason that this is not top of the list is that E. coli infection usually only causes diarrhoea for three to seven days, and then the discomfort stops. Perhaps James had a severe case of this, however, the fact that my discomfort was more prolonged and that I'd had some E. coli preventative medication before I left makes me think that this is not the case. And number three on the list is cholera. I believe that this is pretty unlikely, as I had had preventative treatment for cholera before I left. However, the symptoms of cholera are exactly as I had. Also, the risk of contracting cholera is very low, and I would have hoped that if either James or myself had contracted such a potentially deadly disease, 
that the hospitals would have picked it up. As for the cocktail of drugs that I was prescribed, I'm still taking some of them in order to complete their course. And there are six of them. So here they are. Number one is Lactol Forte. These pills contain Lactobacillus acidophilus, which is considered a probiotic or friendly bacterium. These types of healthy bacteria live in the intestines and protect against some unhealthy organisms. When L. acidophilus breaks down food, it produces lactic acid and hydrogen peroxide that makes the environment hostile for undesired organisms. It can also outcompete harmful bacteria by consuming the nutrients they need. Antibiotics will kill L. acidophilus as well as bad bacteria. So after a course of antibiotics, you will need to take L. acidophilus in order to recolonize the gastrointestinal tract. You can also use it to make yogurt from milk. Number two is ciproxin. These pills contain ciprofloaxin HCL, which is a broad-spectrum antibiotic. Broad-spectrum antibiotics are commonly used, and in my situation were used for the following reasons. Number one, where there are many possible causes of the illness, but where delaying treatment to more accurately identify the cause could result in the illness getting much more serious. And number two, where there are multiple bacteria causing the illness. Broad-spectrum antibiotics are often avoided as they cause bacteria to become resistant to treatment. However, as I was in Hong Kong for such a short time and needed the treatment rather urgently, in the absence of a more thorough diagnosis and to get on the plane, the broad-spectrum was the best option. Number three is profenol. The active ingredient in profenol is alvarine citrate, which is a smooth muscle relaxant. Smooth muscle is a type of muscle that is not under voluntary control, such as in the gut. It acts directly on the muscle in the gut, causing it to relax and preventing muscle spasms. Muscle spasms result in symptoms such as heartburn, abdominal pain and bloating, constipation and diarrhea. Number four is oral rehydration salts. This dissolvable powder contains mainly sodium chloride, sodium citrate, potassium chloride and dextrose monohydrate and is possibly the most important mixture of my drug cocktail. Diarrhea saps the body of important electrolytes, as well as causing dehydration. This is how diarrhea kills millions of people in the third world each year. Number five is biogesic, which simply contains paracetamol, which we all use as a painkiller. And number six is doxycycline. So in addition to my cocktail of drugs, I had to continue taking doxycycline, which was my anti-malaria tablets, in order to complete their course. So for about two weeks there, I had a little cup to hold all my medicine. It made me feel like my grandparents. So clearly, travelling broadens the mind as well as opening the bowels. That was Mark West with the first-person view of the sicker side of Hong Kong. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Children learn languages easily. Is this ability built into the structure of their brains? Bridget Mullane spoke with Professor Stephen Crane, Director of the Macquarie Centre for Cognitive Science. Your research is based on the theory that language ability is at least partly built into the brain. Can you explain that idea? Every child can learn any language that they're exposed to. And the question is, how can that be possible? How is it that a child who's born in Japan and moves to New York can learn English, or a child that's born in New York and moves to Japan can learn Japanese. The theory that was developed by Noam Chomsky at MIT 
attempts to explain this sort of remarkable fact that any child can learn any language with minimum exposure. The idea is that languages are essentially the same. They differ at the margins. So the properties of English and the properties of Japanese are quite similar in many respects. And the child knows those properties in advance. So they come to the task of language acquisition knowing the basic properties of human language. Those are built in or innate. You're using a system called magnetoencephalography, or MEG. How does that work? Magnetoencephalography measures very minute magnetic fields that are generated whenever a person who's near this system is processing information. So as a child is processing information, linguistic information, input is being given to the child, we can actually measure what is going on in the brain by measuring the magnetic fields that are being generated by the neurons that are firing in response to the linguistic input, in response to the information. Do you have to start with children who have not yet learned to speak? Is that how it works? We don't have to start with children who haven't yet learned to speak, but since this is a biological theory of how language develops in the brain, we want to start with children who are as young as we can test them. So I'd like to test children that are about 24 months old because they should be able to understand quite complex linguistic input even at 24 months. How long would you track a particular child? Are you trying to track a child's development in learning language? There's two kinds of studies that we can conduct. One is a longitudinal study where we bring the child back over and over and over again, and we assess that child's development of a certain linguistic structure. Another possibility is just to do group studies where we have a particular structure that we want to investigate, and we investigate it on children at different ages. Now, can you give examples of some of the structures that you suspect might be built into people's brains? And even though you've never encountered some of these or thought about some of these structures before, as soon as you hear the examples, you know how to interpret them. And that's the claim about children, is as soon as they hear some of these complex sorts of linguistic expressions, they'll uh, know to assign the same interpretation that adults assign. There won't be any guesswork for children. They'll immediately latch on to the same interpretation. So let me give you an example. If I say to you, Max didn't eat rice or beans, then you know immediately that that means that Max didn't eat rice and he didn't eat beans. And my view is that for many structures of that kind, if we translate the sentence into Japanese or into Russian or into English or Chinese, then in all of those languages, similar sentences of that kind, the translations of that sentence, will have the same interpretation because that's just the way languages work. For that example, if you said Max did eat rice or beans, people would think it was one or the other. So the negative seems to change the meaning of the sentence. That's exactly right. When we say a positive sentence like Max ate rice or beans, it sounds a little bit odd because presumably if we're talking about what Max ate, then we know what he ate. We ought to just say Max ate rice or we could say Max ate beans if that's what we know. So it sounds a bit odd in the positive. However, when it's in the negative, we're saying what he didn't eat, then we can say with certainty all of the things that we know that he didn't eat. What kind of evidence will tell you that something is similar? Like, is it just these printouts that you get from your machine? Or what exactly would be the proof that you're looking for? We're going to do some experiments while the child or adult is inside the MEG system. 
So they will be looking at a visual display, and it'll have a number of objects on it. And then they'll hear linguistic expression through a headset. And so they'll be responding to what they hear, and they'll be looking at a display. And what we're interested in is whether they think that, that the linguistic expression that they hear corresponds to the visual display. So if Max didn't eat rice or beans, then if Max is uh, shown to be eating rice, then that sentence is just false. And so we can get a brain response that corresponds to surprise or whatever uh, the indication is that someone has heard something that is false. If you find that there's a common structure between several languages, how do you know that isn't just because a society has the same communication needs rather than because the structure's similar? The structures that we're investigating don't have any apparent counterpart in communicative efficiency So we look at very complex structures that don't seem to be in language systems for any particular reason. But it's a good question. It's a a very good question. I am interested in those aspects of language that are in common to all languages, and they might have evolved in all languages for a common purpose. However, most of the things that I study are more complex than one would need to have in order to communicate. Okay, so you studied languages as they exist now and looked for common structures. Yes, we don't know how languages developed and whether they always had these structures. If a negative word like not or didn't and a logical word like or, we don't know how these words develop in the history of mankind. We know how they work now. And as far as we can tell, in any language that we have access to now, we know that they will come up with similar interpretations. If there's a negative word and if there's a word for or, then there will be similar interpretations in languages. Now, how many languages will you be able to study? We have collaborators on our project from China and from Japan. So our initial studies of child language development will be on three languages. English, using children from Sydney, Chinese, using children from mainland China or from Taiwan, and Japanese, using children from Tokyo and Kanazawa, where our collaborating partners have their offices. Those are quite different languages. Historically, yes, the development of Chinese and and Japanese would be quite different than the development of uh, Germanic languages or Romance languages. So if one wants to test some of these theoretical claims that all languages share common properties, one would like to look at languages that differ in many respects because the claim is that there are certain respects in which they don't differ. So it's a good idea to look at languages like Japanese and Chinese and to compare them to languages like German and English and French. Now, where will you find the children to participate in the study? One possibility is that we'll find the sisters and brothers of children that are brought to this lab, but we can advertise for children and we can try to recruit in daycare centres. That was Bridget Mullane talking with Professor Stephen Crane, Director of the Macquarie Centre for Cognitive Science, who is recording the magnetic fields produced by children's brains. Recently, Mark and I went to a talk about the science of speed dating at the National Library in Canberra. It was part of a two-day conference on love and desire, and the evening was hosted by Lish Hogg, one of Australia's leading science communicators. So, Mark, I'm sure Justin and Ian are dying to know just how your evening started. Well, a gentleman never really tells Vanessa 
But the night started, they gave us all name badges. So they had our name on it and then our favourite pizza topping and then a big sticker signalling your availability status. So the pizza topping is supposed to start conversation between people. So I was Mark Supreme with a massive green availability s- status sticker next to my name. What were you, Vanessa? You were Vanessa Mushroom? Vanessa sort of Mushroom, like? yeah. Yeah, a lot of, lot of inspiration went into that. It's not exactly a porn name, is it? No, <laughs> no, not that exciting. So but I guess, I'm guessing green meant available. Green meant available, yes. That We had green uh, for available, we had red for unavailable, and yellow for mysterious. Though we did notice it. quite a few people that had sort of a green and a yellow, so I don't know what that meant, available and mysterious. Yeah, well, a lot, a lot of the girls were mysterious, weren't they? I think <laughs> a lot of the guys that were there were like, yeah, I'm available, come on, talk to me. But uh, the girls were a bit more coy about it all. Was the pizza topping for compatibility? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Maybe. Maybe that it starts up a conversation. You had to search out the other mushroom in the room or something <laughs> like that. But um, there were some weird pizza toppings, I've got to say. And there was one like n- nougat and... There was a nougat one. Praline or something. Nougat and praline. I remember a broccoli one. Broccoli. I mean, I don't know who's hooking up with these yeah, people. Yeah, so I'm not sure they're going to find it out. Pizza partner. I feel sorry for poor garlic. Yeah, well, that's... <laughs> <laughs> and was there any actual science at this? Well, event? there was a little bit of science. In between the free drinks that, that they gave us facilitating the conversation, Lish gave us a talk all about the science of love. So she talked about the various chemicals that are produced in your brain when you're feeling uh, loving feelings or caring feelings for somebody. And it was these chemicals that she was hoping to promote during the evening. One of the things she talked about was the chemical of oxytocin, which is, some people call it the, the cuddle drug. It's produced during childbirth and it's released during labour and it bonds the mother to the child, creating this sort of eternal bond. And obviously that's evolutionarily good because it helps in child rearing. It's also released during sex. So that, I guess that's why some people like to cuddle after sex. I don't know. They get, they get bonded. It's all about the chemicals. <laughs> Edit. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sounds perfectly reasonable. Yeah, to good, good. This is 2SER dating service. <laughs> well, they talked about the dopamine reward circuit, which is probably part of that. Dopamine is released in it also aids in bonding people. Dopamine is what also is released when you take illegal drugs and why you get the feelings of euphoria that go with that. And also changes in your levels of serotonin, which is also another illegal drug thing. It's kind of faking the whole love feeling, which is why people do it. It's like an antidepressant. It raises your serotonin. Well, is that how antidepressants work? I thought uh, a lower level of serotonin was good for you. No, the original idea was that they're serotonin reuptake inhibitors so that the serotonin stays around longer. And it used to be thought that clinical depression was not enough serotonin in the brain. Um, They're now realising that the reason these things don't work instantly but take six to eight weeks to work is that there's some indirect mechanism and it's not serotonin after all. I think I've heard that. So is it true then that love makes you depressed? You have withdrawal effects after the absence of love. Oh, okay. That's why breakups really hurt. And that's why rebound relationships just boost your serotonin again, do they? All those dopamine reward centres get rewarded again. So did you find a Marsha Supreme? Marsha. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. A lot of the girls were vegetarian there, so... <laughs> oh, does that rule them right out? Not at all. <laughs> I'm a new age man. <laughs> Was there any science in the speed dating? Can people really assess each other that quickly? One of the initial things that people are attracted to in in people they might be interested in, and actually in art and in anything they find beautiful, is something known as the golden ratio, which is uh, 1.61 to 1. So if you're beautiful, the the length of your mouth is going to be have a ratio of 1.6 
to the width of your nose. Same with regards to your height as to your height to your belly button. And you can find the golden ratio anywhere in your body. There was also talk about ratios for females between the hips and the waist, which is meant to be something Ah. like 0.7, which is the perfect ratio for, like, fertility and stuff like that. So um, bringing it back to the speed dating, that was what you'd get in that eight minutes that you spend talking to someone in a speed dating. So, you, I mean, you can get a little bit about personality and stuff, but really that's all you should be looking for, the, the ratio, the not to seven hips to waist, which is meant to be the perfect. Which you do subconsciously, obviously. Well, a, apparently. Well, I would You know. might do it subconsciously. <laughs> I'm out there looking. Looking for 1.6 1. <laughs> as opposed to 1.7. <laughs> One of the other interesting ratio things is there's a study that's been done that says if you're if you're looking for your soulmate, you should look at nine percent of the available people, and then the first person that meets your criteria that you that you discover from that nine percent, you should go for. So if you're in a crowd of a hundred people, you should look at the first nine people, assess the quality of the crowd, and then find the next person that you know is better than them or meets your criteria from them. Uh-huh. If you wait any longer there's a good chance you might miss the person, your best match out of all that. And if you go too quickly, your best match might not be very good for you at all because <laughs> you haven't looked at enough people. All about timing, really. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild passionate praise, then email us at diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com or check out our podcast feed feeds.feedburner.com slash diffusion radio Contributing to the program were Justin Seltzer Bridget Mullane Mark West and Ian Wolfe Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network I'm Vanessa Gardos Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.